I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, wanted to say a quick message before we started today's episode. I'm sure some of you are aware about my recent family circumstances. I wanted to say a huge thank you to Ben and producer Dan and, B- and Bonsi for running the ship whilst I was gone, um, giving me much needed time with my family. I also wanted to say a huge thanks to you guys, the ICMAP family, for all the lovely comments and all the messages of support. Um, I have read through them all and had a good cry. So thank you so much. That did really mean a lot. Seems to me like during life's darkest moments, it can really show the kind of the light that surrounds you. And this has been a really difficult time, but also you guys have made it much easier for me and for my family. So I want to say a huge thank you from the bottom of my heart. And um, yeah, that's that's enough about death. Let's uh, talk about some murder. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. Let me try to briefly answer that by saying that I killed rapists, paedophiles, and sex offenders. No other type of person, no, no other type of offender. So my past crimes strongly suggest that this is the group most and solely at risk. Why is this? I can say that yes, I have been raped and yes, I have been sexually abused by such people. And consequently, I do detest these people enough to have killed them. Are we all not products of our environment? Do we all not form our opinions, beliefs, etc. from how we perceive that environment? Wakefield prison authorities perceive me as a problem. Their solution to that problem to date has been an effect to bury me alive. The cage ultimately for them being my concrete coffin, but is that the final solution? The, the question I would ask of everyone at Wakefield is why treat me the way they are? Welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast. We are back again. It's good to be back. How you doing, Ben? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Very happy to be back with my boys. It's a big one today. It's a big case. Yeah, it's a big case. Producer Dan, how are you doing? Uh, buzzing. Absolutely buzzing. We're back. I'm very happy with this Gully Garms item I'm wearing today. Uh, thank you, Gully Garms, once again, for dressing us to this series. I was loving it. I think it's my favourite thing I've got so far. But then mm. I've just caught myself in the monitor and I'm getting a little bit Mrs. Doubtfire vibes. 
happy with it. One of my favourite films as a kid. Still stand by, it's my favourite, but it says more about me than it does about Cully Garms. I do voices. Impression of a hot dog. All those things. All those things. And a big welcome to anyone that's come over from the Happy Hour podcast. We had the pleasure of going on, on their podcast the other day. It was a good laugh. Ben, ben, how did you find it? I was intimidated. They're so good. They're they so, good, so good. And, and you thrown into the mix. Also, so, so, so good. So solid crew in a way, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really fun. And thank you once again to the boys for, for having us on. It was uh, an absolute privilege. Absolute not, privilege. Not going to put you on the spot, but which studio do you prefer? Um, this studio or their studio? Well, theirs is very warm. Mm-hmm. Intimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Sounds like mine. <laughs> then, of course, I, I would say this studio because vibey. It's, yeah, it's definitely vibey. I, lo- I love the lights. I in love them. Yeah. I mean, there's a few comments people saying they prefer the old way, but <laughs> I don't. I just simply don't. <laughs> anyway, uh, this case is a big freaking case. Mm. Um, I said a bit because Dan doesn't know much about this case at all, do you, producer? No, I don't. Yeah. And I said a line to him out, um, outside before we began, and he's like, "Oh." He thought I was being a bit, I don't know, a bit edgy or a bit like a bit of a weird thing for me to say, which got me excited to do the episode. Yeah, I think when, we, as, as you mentioned in an earlier episode in the series, we sit down before we, we do the series, we get our list together, Tom picks six, I pick six, and this was the one out of, of, of the whole 12 that I was, I didn't know that much about, but it's a very, very interesting case and very different compared uh, to the ones we've covered so far. It's unique in a lot of different ways. So what was it about Robert Maudsley that piqued your interest our researcher danielle said we should do it and it's sometimes it's that that as simple simple. as that i was like i said i said to danielle i was like what would you like to be able to research you do a lot for us pick a case any case any case at all and she picked this one i was like i don't know much about that one and then i read up about it and i was like yes you can have that (laughs) we will cover that Uh, because yeah it is i mean some of the names ben we've got written down here the brain eater britain's most dangerous criminal hannibal the cannibal the man in the glass box the Wolfman of Wakefield, Jaws, Britain's longest serving prisoner, commonly known in prison as Spoons. Spoons and Blue. Blue Spoons and Blue. So lots of names in there which evoke a lot of different images in one's brain. We often get asked the question as well, Ben, which I don't know if you're going to agree. I think you probably will agree with me on this. If you could be any killer, what killer would you be? And we usually say that's a, that's a horrible question to ask. In regards to the actual uh, people that Mr. Maudsley would go on to kill, mm. say they deserve it. Yeah, he, everything in doing the research for this episode, any documentary or video I watched about it, in the comments section, there was almost unanimous and universal praise for him, which is rare. Praise and sympathy. Yeah. A lot of people said um, they appreciate what he's done, etc., etc. Dan's face looks even more... Oh, yeah. I am very interested. <laughs> yes. There was one particular comment um, that I saw on one particular video that said, if this guy was an American, he would be a national treasure. Oh, But yeah, we are back in Blighty this week, aren't we, Ben? We are back indeed. So we spent the first uh, portion of the series over in America and Canada. It's nice to come back to our roots. Um, and a lot of people enjoy the British cases. So this is... They like the- a bit of the apples and pears, don't they, Ben? They do indeed, yeah. I don't know where that person was from. You've heard the dire duff fire, dear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually won a quiz, a pub quiz the other day, and, and Mr. Duff was one of the questions. Where was she from? Where was she from? Dan? Illinois. As in the character of Mr. Duff, yeah. Scotland. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. The Guinness killed him. Hit by a truck. <laughs> but yes, anyway, back to the case. We are, I'm very excited to cover this one. So thank you, Danielle, for, for picking this one. Yeah. It is a very interesting one indeed. I think, yeah, just seeing the words, the brain eater, immediately like, mm. ooh. Well, spoons, I wanted to know more. Really? Yeah. Oh. Spoons. Yeah. What's all this about? And I think the really intriguing thing about this particular case is he's one of the few people to go into prison, a murderer, and then become a serial killer. That the is. dynamics are 
a little bit wavy. Before we jump into the case, guys, a massive thank you as always for everyone that's been following us on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. We really appreciate all the love. We are going to be doing the episode vote this week for case 10. Case number 10. Make sure you're following us on at Pod. The Instagram vote will be up at some point this week. So we're really excited to see what you guys want us to cover. I'm still in my head. Like, there's two cases. I You said that every time. Yeah. Those well, two cases. And they've never it, been picked. They've never been picked. Don't get the lots of numbers from Ben. <laughs> Same two every time. You need six or whatever it is. So Robert John Maudsley was born on the 26th of June, 1953, which was a Friday. Thanks, Ben. In Speck, Liverpool. So Speck is a small suburb south of the city of Liverpool, and it's notable for the fact that half of the Beatles live there, George Harrison and Paul McCartney. You love this stuff. Little Ben tidbits. Yeah. Little Ben tits. Um, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was also for a time the home to the British television personality Les Dennis. So Robert was one of 12 children born to George and Jean Maudsley. His father George was a coalman, uh, meaning that he delivered coal to people's homes, and his mother Jean stayed at home to raise their children. Why that took you? Because a coalman, when I read it, I thought that was a, a coal miner, but a coalman is not a coal miner. A coalman delivers coal to homes. Chris Coleman. The Maudsley home was an extremely chaotic environment for the children and physical abuse was rife. And this came from both parents, but in quite a bizarre way. Essentially, the mother, Jean, would look for ways to get her children in trouble with the dad. George was particularly physically aggressive. There are rumours that he was also sexually aggressive with the children. And Robert would also claim later in life that as a youngster, he was raped by his father. So Robert had a very violent and turbulent upbringing and the family also didn't have a lot of money and often struggled to make ends meet. So this would result in the kids often going out thieving. And if they didn't come home with anything good, this sometimes would result into more abuse. Picture a bit of a Fagan yeah. scenario there. Yeah. And also if they were home late, the mother would dob them in. Mm. Which I thought, you know, bit of grass. So Robert would share a single bedroom with three other siblings, so not a healthy environment whatsoever. According to Maudsley's older brother Paul, their father George repeatedly abused him and Robert, as well as one other brother in particular, but it was widely believed that Robert got the brunt of it. Paul said that their father would frequently hit them without explanation and sometimes even struck them with objects like his belt, a metal pipe, and even a walking stick. Paul also said that when he and Robert weren't being beaten, both of their parents ignored the boys, which made for a very uncomfortable home environment in which the children felt unwanted and unloved. We've often discussed that, haven't we, in terms of not having a safe space and coming home and growing up in an environment where you constantly feel a threat. You're kind of in that situation, they're just wishing and hoping they get ignored by their parents rather than abused. It's just a completely... Yeah, and it's it's a weird dynamic as well because they completely ignored them, so they're also just feeling abandoned mm. but abused at the same time. It's yes, yeah, it's, it's a horrible idea. Isn't feeling it? alone in a room in a house that has fourteen people in is yeah, it's, it's baffling. Shortly before Robert turned one, he and two of his brothers, Paul and Kevin, as well as one of his sisters, Brenda, were removed from the family home by child services and placed into a Catholic orphanage in Liverpool called Nazareth House. This was put down to the fact that the parents could not cope. However, some believe it was actually down to parental child abuse. Whilst the four Maudsley children, Robert, Paul, Kevin and Brenda, were living in the orphanage, George and Jean went on to have an additional eight children, bringing the total to 12 Maudsleys. So on that, if they were struggling to run the family home or to raise the children, why go on to have eight more? Catholic. That would explain that. Yeah, I mean, the Catholic thing, I, I, I don't know if they were Catholic, but they went to Catholic orphanage, so maybe it would suggest they, they were. Um, but still, that is... A lot of children. Mm -hmm. Being pregnant for 108 months. Oh, wow. But the nice thing here was the, the orphanage was actually a nice place to be. Yeah, for the, for the time you're expecting mm. not a nice environment at all, but pleasantly surprised. 
So when placed into Nazareth House, the four Maudsley children formed close relationships with one another, as well as the nuns who run the home. This was essentially their first experience of a stable and healthy kind of environment. They weren't ignored, they weren't abused, and the Maudsley children were in fact said to have been extremely obedient, well-behaved and polite children. Again, despite a rough upbringing, they've still got good manners, they're still behaving, they're, you know, they're not acting out at this stage yeah no yeah i I had the same worries as you um when they moved up there often these cases you go from one place you think ah into even worse place and yeah you worry but this was actually quite a nice part of morsley's life probably i would go on to say not spoiler but probably one of the happier times in his life I would agree. So this piece sadly would not last long as Morsley's parents returned to the orphanage when Robert was eight years old to retrieve him and take him and his other siblings back to the family home to be with their eight other siblings. They kind of were a bit confused at the return of their parents because they actually believed them to be dead. You know, they were very settled in the, in the um, orphanage and a bit confused as to why they were there because Robert went in there just before he turned one. So, you know, he's very young. He doesn't really remember his parents and then they've come along hearing that they might be adopted and they kind of swoop in and basically you know convince the, the orphanage that they're you know on the right track now they can look after them so sadly this um respite for uh, robert was not long lived when back in the family home robert was subjected to routine beatings from both his mother and his father with his mother jean often being the one to incite and encourage george to beat the children for very very minor things such as uh, arriving home late from school getting their clothes dirty or making a, a mess in the house it wouldn't just be you know, a little telling off and a slap on the wrist, it would be severe beatings for mm. being only moments late returning home. His mother would often, in fact, look for excuses and reasons to get the father to beat the children, which is just, yeah, terrifying behaviour. So a couple of years went by and Robert was again removed from the family house, this time by social services who suspected child abuse and as a result removed Robert entirely from his parents' care. It's important to note that only Robert was removed and only Robert was placed into foster care. So you could perhaps argue that he was the problem child and this was a decision influenced by the parents. Or you could argue that Robert was the child that was picked on the most and received the worst levels of abuse, with the latter being the most likely. Quite a powerful quote from Maudsley looking back on his childhood. All I remember of my childhood is the beatings. Once I was locked in a room for six months and my father only opened the door to come in and beat me. He did this four or six times a day. He used to hit me with sticks or rods and once he even bust a 22 air rifle over my back. During this time that he was locked in this room, um, that it's alleged that the sexual abuse also took part um, from the father. So I, I don't read many books. Oh, that surprises you, right? The Magic Key? <laughs> but there's one book I read many, many, many years ago. I've talked about it on Patreon before, but it's called A Child Called It by a guy called Dave Peltzer. It's about his own life experience. It's a harrowing read. It, I've never, a film has never made me feel the way that this book made me feel. I was, Ooh. yeah, like I was captivated. But there's a particular scene where he's in and out of different foster homes. He's being routinely abused by the mother at home, but he knows who she is and she comes back to take him from a very happy environment. And this, this, the paragraph in which she comes back to take him back, phew, that it stuck with me for a while. But his childhood reminds me, it's just the mother in this case, but his childhood just reminds me almost identically of uh, Robert Maudsley's childhood. It's absolutely hideous. But yeah, A Child Called It, Dave Peltzer. Two thumbs up. Um, uh, 
Two thumbs up. As a teenager during the late 1960s, after struggling to find a consistent placement through multiple foster homes, Robert made the decision to flee to London. And at this time, his father George told the rest of the siblings that Robert had died. Yeah, so it's odd because they grew up thinking that they were dead. And then he's gone on to explain or lie to them and saying that he had passed away as well. So yeah, it's, it's a very turbulent, horrible time. Obviously, from the names we've given the case at the very beginning, it's obviously not going to be the case but before we jump into the timeline we want to say a big thank you to our sponsors dead happy so dead happy is life insurance without the bullshit no stupid questions life is too short for that shit no (laughs) no medicals ain't got time for that no paperwork what's paperwork no sales calls ring ring fuck off (laughs) no free gifts well, with our code, Ben, you get free three months, so in a way, it is a gift, isn't it? And no IFAs or brokers. Dead Happy have killed off the middlemen. So Dead Happy are also very flexible. As flexible as a Ben cart on a Friday night after a couple of Bacardi breeders. That's absolutely right. They even have pay-as-you-go life insurance. Dead Happy is priced based on who you are right now rather than who you are in 20 years, so you know you're going to get the best price possible. And Ben, I don't know the kind of person you're going to be in 20 years if you keep drinking those Bacardi breeders. <laughs> Seriously, is we've actually brought you here. This we're not actually filming. These cameras aren't rolling. We're here to talk to you about your problem. The problem is you haven't got life insurance. So head over to deadhappy.com and use our code MURDER to get three months free. Die responsibly, not a dummy. Please. It's a breezer to sign that. So now we are going to go into the timeline for Robert Maudsley. So in the 1960s, as we mentioned, Maudsley would go to London in hope to find a better life. But sadly, that would not be the case. So as a teenager, Maudsley would go on to find work as a sex worker to support his drug habit. And he would offer his services to men that he would approach in bars. And at one stage, whilst working as a sex worker, he was sexually assaulted. There's not too much information about this assault, but um, it's alleged to have set up a lot of memories from his father and the horrific treatment that he, he suffered. So this would lead him to spiral and then go on to attempt suicide several times after this. And I imagine that that is a decision that people don't make like lightly when they get involved in the world of sex work, especially in this situation that he was in. And he was a teenager. I imagine that in this scenario, he was kind of forced to make that decision. He was going for the more conventional kind of employment, but uh, he was living on the street, so he wasn't able to get a job. Mm-hmm. So I think it def- definitely was a case of, you know, he had to do something to make money and, you know, something to feed him and his drug habit, and it's, it led him to sex work. And that probably further pushes the narrative that he was abused because he's still a teenager at this time, but sexually abused from a very young age by his family. It, sex was a very transactory kind of procedure. It wasn't It wasn't out of love. It was a case of, you know, that would... It's like a bit like Eileen. Yeah. You know, it would lead to him getting money for enable for him to do what he wants to do rather than, you know, it coming from a place of love. So a quote from Maudsley during this time is, if I had killed my parents in 1970, none of these people need have died. Yeah, so basically after he attempted suicide several times, he began hearing voices in his head. So he went to seek psychiatric help. It was during these appointments with the psychiatrist that he admitted that he was raped and abused throughout his childhood by his father. He explained how his father would lock him up for long stints in a room alone, only visit in, in order to beat him numerous times a day. And he also claimed to hear voices telling him to kill his parents. So he had a situation here where, you know, he has such disdain and distaste towards his parents. Any kind of like throwback memory, it just triggers yeah. him. It makes him start hearing voices. He, starts, he wants the drug to numb the pain. He wants to, he's trying to escape this, but it seems to be getting thrown back in his face. So during his time as a sex worker, Maudsley was fighting a lot of inner demons as well as an expensive drug habit. He had built up a lot of resentment towards his parents for the abuse he and his siblings suffered at their hands. 
And he also blamed them for the position that he was now in. So he blamed them for the fact that he was living off the streets. He blamed them the fact that he had a fairly expensive drug habit. And he blamed them for the fact that he was immersed in in the world of sex work. Robert was depressed, angry and potentially unstable um, at this time. He returned to the streets and back into the cycle of sex work and drugs after failing to receive the psychiatric care that he so desperately needed. During this time, he met a man called John Farrell, which is a massive kind of pivotal moment of this case. Farrell was a labourer and told Maudsley that he was recently divorced and was seeking some company. But he wasn't prepared to pay and he was after a casual relationship. Farrell was an older and richer man and Maudsley perhaps saw a way out from his lifestyle or even safety with Farrell. Potentially even just an opportunity to get a roof over his head. So he was more than happy to accept his proposal. Yeah, so as Ben said, this is a pivotal moment. It wasn't open, it was kind of casual and open. So Morsley was still carrying on um, doing the sex work, but it was a bit of an agreement between the two. You know, he would look after and pay for things. It wasn't your average, just here's your money for sex. It was a bit more, a bit deeper than that. Mm-hmm. So they, it kind of grew a bond quite quickly between the two. Do you think he sees him as a father figure? <laughs> Maybe the father he never had. Mm-hmm. But then obviously that's muddied by the fact that obviously there's sex involved as well. Maudsley would continue taking drugs at this time, which Farrell wasn't overly happy about. But, you know, he kind of was able to look past that. So in March 1974, Farrell told Maudsley he had a surprise for him and was very excited for Maudsley to see it. Little did he know that the surprise would be the last thing Maudsley wanted to see. When Farrell picked up Maudsley... Maudsley was under the influence of drugs, which wasn't anything new. Once they returned to Farrell's home, he took out some photographs from his drawer. Farrell handed Maudsley the photos and he began to look after them, but he was in such a state he, he appeared confused, wasn't really taking in what the pictures were showing, and Farrell told him to look closer. As Maudsley began to look closer at the images, it all became clear. These were pictures of children being sexually abused. Not surprisingly, as a victim of sexual abuse himself, Maudsley didn't like what he saw. Farrell bragged about what he had done to the boys in the pictures. Maudsley stood up as he couldn't look at the images any longer. Farrell was confused by his reaction. Farrell indicated he would like Maudsley to do what the kids were doing to him in the photos. The voices in Maudsley's head returned and they wanted revenge for him as a child and for the children in the photos. So yeah, in this moment, he's obviously kind of, they're quite sobering images that he's seen. The voices in uh, Maudsley's head uh, start to come back and Maudsley spots a cord on the floor and decides to wrap it around Farrell's neck. Farrell didn't resist as he thought this was all part of the act. Then Maudsley began to pull the cord tightly and choke Farrell. He pulled out a pocket knife and stabbed him over and over. But this wasn't enough. He then found a hammer and smashed him over the head until his skull was in pieces and Farrell was dead. So this was a a kind of a fit of rage, you know, Maudsley kind of saw red. As I said at the beginning of this episode, this guy's essentially gone, let's spice up this relationship by showing me sexually abused children to your photo. And Maudsley going, you know, obviously that's triggered him. Because they've been together for about like six months yeah, at this point. It's yeah. kind of a semi-serious relationship. He had built trust. You know, this is a person, they were, they were fond of one another. He trusted him. And then someone in the point, position of trust and, you know, power, because he was, you know, um, the, the older gentleman. He's abused that power and he's basically let him down and betrayed him and betrayed him in the worst way possible. So Maudsley has now killed Farrell. And I think he takes um, time to compose himself, sober up, kind of realise what he's done. He still feels justified in the attack uh, based on what Farrell had showed him but Maudsley quickly decides that he deserves to be punished for his actions and that going to the police was the right thing to do. Perhaps he even felt that they may understand his actions. The research that we've done 
he kind of he was still seeking help at this point. He felt like if he admitted what he'd done, then he could be treated or looked after and the voices would go away. So Maudsley would surrender himself to the Wood Green police, saying that he needed psychiatric care. So this was obviously the late 70s. The best levels of psychiatric care were perhaps not available to Maudsley. Yeah, I mean, he's been in there before. He's told them he can hear voices. He's told them that he's the voices of saying he killed his parents. Like we said before, from numerous cases, that wasn't enough for them to take things seriously. Maudsley surrenders himself to the Wood Green Police, saying that he needed psychiatric care for killing a sex offender. He was declared unfit to stand trial and was sent to Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane, with a recommendation that he should never be released. So Broadmoor, obviously quite notorious in the in the true crime world. Brutal treatments there, even just kind of the look of it, the barbed wire, the old buildings, very unsanitary. Apparently, allegedly, there's decades of sexual abuse by staff and senior staff, but also for for Maudsley, this is another another situation where he's locked somewhere and he can't escape. A lot like how his father would lock him up in in the cupboard for the, the months at a time. So Maudsley's now at a situation where you know he's got a roof over his head, which probably you know he appreciated, but he was not. He's not getting the care he needs, and he's not getting the help he needs. And also, he thinks he's surrounded by people that he shouldn't be surrounded with. Yeah, this is the part that made me have the most empathy for Maudsley because he still has some sort of a, a moral compass. He's turned himself in. He had the option to run away, try and get away with it, hide the body whatever mm. you want to call it he's claimed that it was kind of a justice killing because the fact that this was a it was a paedophile that he'd killed but instead he reaches out for help and hands himself in mm. I don't think we've covered a case where that's happened before but then would you say because obviously he's looking for psychiatric care Broadmoor it was a very violent attack the police he did mm-hmm. tell the police exactly what he'd done they turned up yeah. they saw the body they saw exactly what he told them and they would have seen the pictures as well so would have seen it you know his story would add up completely because he's told them the complete truth I don't think he's telling them that expecting to get a life sentence abroad more. No. I think he's telling them that to say, look, I've killed a sex offender. I do need help, but it was a sex offender. I've taken someone off the street that, yeah. One less person for you to... That's it. As I said before, that's a lot of the comments on YouTube on other, on other documentaries about it kind of saying was he's done a favour to the society by taking off people like that off the streets. But yeah, it, it's a very... Um, conflicting kind of situation and yeah February 26th 1977 during his time at Broadmoor Maudsley met David Cheeseman another inmate who had been at Broadmoor for over 10 years and whilst uh, serving at Broadmoor Maudsley also met David Francis who was there for child sex offences unfortunately for Francis the voices in Maudsley's head weren't quite finished so basically he struck up a, a friendship with David Cheeseman and the, and the rumours are that they both felt that they were in Broadmoor and they shouldn't be in Broadmoor, yep. they should be in an actual state prison. The rumours of abuse and what they would have to go through, late 70s again in Broadmoor was, was you know, you'd rather be in a prison than that environment. Yeah. According to reports, Maudsley and Cheeseman had been allowed out of their locked single rooms for a game of football. David Francis was also taking part in the football match. Maudsley had been at Broadmoor for three years at this point and knew exactly where he wanted to seek revenge on Francis. So apparently when Cheeseman was playing football, he was wearing a red Leicester shirt. <laughs> West Camden Bay United. Palmer. Sam. Palmer's good. Palmer's very good. Cheeseman's favourite <laughs> player was Delhi. Delhi. <laughs> good. Doesn't really work either. Uh, there's probably some James Bree he's a right back for Luton I knew it would be a stretch if he was to go on and commit a murder he would be he'd be taken out of Broadmoor and put into a standard prison so that's what his escape weirdly was his way to escape Broadmoor is to kill seems quite an interesting technique unless that's the only way out if you're given a life sentence for Broadmoor Mm. secure hospital receiving treatment Mm. so to speak maybe he and Cheeseman 
realised that that was their only way out. I mean, Cheeseman had been there for over 10 years, mm. long-standing. I mean, that cheese had aged. Maudsley um, Dale. I mean, maybe they weren't getting the care or support they needed. Maybe they didn't feel safe. Maybe they were being abused. Have you got another one for me? Apparently they were both kind of hang out a lot and moan about the circumstance and Walsley would call it cheese and wine night. <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And Maudsley would always bring out the cheese Bordsley. Doesn't work as well. Morsley Dale, Gromit. We forgot the cheese, man. <laughs> All right, that's enough of that. <laughs> Far too long. <laughs> and none of them were that good. So after the game, Cheeseman asked a male nurse to open the boot room, and Francis, Maudsley, and Cheeseman went inside. When the nurse went to follow them, Maudsley pushed the door shut, and Cheeseman barricaded the door with a locker. Before his view was obscured, the nurse saw Francis with his hands tied with a cord from a record player and being kicked in the stomach by Maudsley. Maudsley and Cheeseman had clearly premeditated their attack on the other inmate, isolating him to enact Maudsley's revenge for preying on children. They tortured him for nine hours, stabbing him and smashing his head against the wall. Francis allegedly screamed, Why don't you kill me? And then Maudsley kind of st- took a st- step back, kind of nine hours passed you know you can imagine the state he would have been at that stage mm-hmm. and I think he thought no, I've done my mission here because he, he wanted to make a statement as well he didn't, yeah. just, he didn't want to just shank someone and then they them die he wanted to show look I'm serious about this you don't want me in this prison essentially uh, send me to prison yeah get me out of this Broadmoor yeah put me in prison put me in Nick so then they strangled him to death um, after that and after he murdered David Francis he held up his body up to the prison staff who had been bargaining for the hostage's life a guard said that Maudsley fractured the man's skull like an egg he was found with a spoon hanging out of his fractured skull leading to claims that Maudsley ate part of his brain with a spoon something that has since become a legend giving Maudsley the nickname Spoons or the Brain Eater so but with that it's kind of been speculated whether or not he did actually eat it or not I think they just kind of ripped a chunk spoon a chunk out of the brain out yeah. rather than at it reports from the guards at the prison claim that although there was a significant amount of terror and bloodshed whilst they attempted to gain access to the room. The part about the brain matter being eaten was false. 
No cannibalism occurred. The spoon was simply an object used for torture, as that was the only cutlery issued to patients. So with the spoons as well, they'd sharpen them up into yeah. knives, essentially, and then, yeah, they used that in order to, to torture. Cut the middle bit of the spoon head out, and you've got a little prong. Hey, cutting the head out. Banging against the wall. People are here, there, aren't they? The spoon in afterwards. Carter, can you knock it off? I'm trying. This is the interesting part because when he's reached out for help and taken his first victim, he's deemed not fit for trial and sent straight to Broadmoor. He's now in a secure unit, took someone for hostage, tortured them for nine hours. At this trial, he's deemed to have been found competent to stand trial. Bizarre, bizarre. So he does stand trial this time and was convicted of manslaughter. As a result, Maudsley and Cheeseman got exactly what they wanted. They were removed from Broadmoor and sent to Wakefield Prison. Your old stomping ground? Uh, well, I was about seven miles north of Wakefield Prison. Stomping uh, ground. Just to be... The monster mansion. Yes. So basically, the lesson here is, if you want to get your way, bash the fucking shit out of someone's brain, eh, Dan? If you want to get your way, uh, try your best at anything you want to do. But you have to ask what kind of message that sends out to the other people at Broadmoor. So yeah, they've both been sent to the Monster Mansion and Maudsley made it clear that he disliked the transfer and they wanted to return to Broadmoor. Which is an interesting stance to take considering you worked extremely hard to get transferred out of Broadmoor. The grass isn't always greener, Ben. Mm. Sometimes they can look greener, but you get close, there's lots of worms. Oh, that's dog shit. You're talking about my garden. I could be talking about either of your gardens, but I'm not. I'm talking about Maudsley's. It's a bloody state. Still got cheese puns. Yeah. Wish him around my head. Go on. Go on. When like, he had the, uh, took the guy hostage, him and Cheeseman, they mm. took him into the room and like all the staff were kicking off saying, you know, don't do that, put him down, untie him. They said, uh, don't fed about it. Fetter. Don't fetter when about Ma- it. Maudsley was stabbing him, he was like, keep him stilton. <laughs> That's better. Because we've done other cases where they've ended up in Wakefield. There are some characters there that I feel Maudsley would not be very happy about being in the same environment with. Yep. Ian Watkins. Yep. Ian Huntley. Yeah, all the Ian. Just doesn't have a dislike for guys by the name of Ian. Apparently the, the paedophilic nature of them. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I can't see them getting on. No. Um, yeah, and it, it's when he got there as well, he discovered that his reputation had preceded him. He was widely considered to be a dangerous prisoner, which I think is fair enough, with the other inmates referring to him as Hannibal the Cannibal and Brain Eater. So in 1974, David Cheeseman and a different inmate were convicted of the attempted murder of a male nurse at Rampton Hospital, and the pair of them would hit this individual over the head with an iron bar. In 1977, a few years later, upon sentencing for the murder of David Francis, he warned the judge that he would kill again if sent back to Broadmoor. Think about Cheeseman, he was also trained up in, like, you know, judo, um, fondue. Um, he was a very dangerous character. Yeah. Everybody was fondue fighting. Oh, delicious. So the 29th of July, 1978, within weeks of arriving at Wakefield Prison, Maudsley was up to his old tricks again. He invited a fellow prisoner called Solney Darwood into his cell. Solney was serving a sentence for the murder of his wife, Blanche, and Maudsley proceeded to grot and stab Solney, killing him before hiding his body under his bed. And Maudsley then went on the prowl around the wing, hunting for a second victim. So yeah, he was asking, apparently inviting people back to his room and people could see in his eyes, you know, that just not go there fellow prisoners claimed that he spent the day attempting to lure them in but they all refused he finally snuck into the cell of 56 year old William Bill Roberts and attacked him as he lay on his bunk Morsley used a spoon pointed enough to be used as a dagger and stabbed Bill several times 
also repeatedly smashing his head against a wall. Maudsley then walked into the prison officer's room, placed the spoon turned dagger onto the table and calmly told them that there would be two prisoners short for the roll call that day. Like with everything, that line he says there, if that is the line, that's, that sounds badass. And just to clarify, William Roberts is also a child sex offender, so it wasn't just a random attack. You can kind of see it all in your head, can't you? The, yeah. Kind of the lines and going in there and saying that. There's a really weird bit about that morning as well that he he basically prepared. He wanted to kill as many people as possible. Mm. That morning, he had made in in Mortley's cell two paper coffins, origami style, but coffin, mm. just the size of like Stuart Little would fit, like in. a little action man coffin. Okay, Stuart um, Little. Stuart Little would get in there, be spacious. Tom Thumb, possibly. Vern Troy. Or probably get two of his legs in. It's not all of them. No. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, he planned to kill like seven prisoners that day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was on a rampage. Like his plan wasn't to kill to then go back to Broadmoor. His, it's like his no. divine mission here was, you know, he still basically was looking at when he was committing these crimes, looking at them as if he was reacting to his parents. parents yeah, yeah. And taking out, you know, the anger and the hurt they caused on onto these people. Like you said this quote earlier on, if I killed my parents, none of, none of these people would have died. Mm-hmm. Essentially how he looks at it. But yeah, he looks at it as, you know, he's killing people who kind of deserve to so he's kind of like a vigilante in prison yeah justice killings he's trying to justify yeah which is weird and and the whole is he wanting to get out of wakefield because he's seen i've got well if i if i kill another person maybe they'll move me somewhere else because mm. he also said at the trial when he was trying to get out of broadmoor if you send me back to broadmoor i'm gonna kill a load of people again yeah so unless he's trying to you know he's been locked up in wakefield for a few weeks decided this ain't for me either because he goes on to be called the most dangerous prisoner britain's most dangerous prisoner yeah is he? It's the statement itself. So Britain's most dangerous prisoner whilst in prison, possibly, because yeah. he's done a lot of bad things in prison. But there are other people I'd rather... Actually, he is quite terrifying. But then only if you've done nonsense or killing your wife. Whenever I hear the term Britain's most dangerous prisoner, the go-to name is Bronson. Mm. Because he's a scary badass. But Maudsley, walking mm. along, spinning a sharpened spoon, placing it down, saying, you're going to be too short in the morning? Mm. That is very blasé but it's also terrifying the people that he's killing as well in prison are the people that other prisoners consider to be the worst of the worst mm-hmm. yeah I'm sure he would also would kill child killers as well yeah he wouldn't go yeah. oh you know what I'm alright with that <laughs> if anything I would assume the other prisoners would be on his side or yeah. think he's a bit, obviously a bit of a live wire in terms of way he goes about it but so in 1979 Morsley went to trial for these two murders the court heard that during his violent rages Maudsley believed his victims were his parents the killings his lawyers argued were the result of pent-up aggression and unresolved trauma resulting from a childhood of near constant abuse and neglect Maudsley claimed when I kill I think I have my parents in mind if I had killed my parents in 1970 none of these people need have died if I had killed them then I would be walking around as a free man without a care in the world maybe spiritually maybe yeah yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it probably would be, be locked up. There's a very different case. I think as well, what goes on to happen next is he's made a bit of a mockery of the UK prison systems here because he's killed two people within a few hours mm. in a high security With prison. a spoon, but With a spoon, yeah. Got the not even of... a spork. No, not even a spork. That'd be a good time now to throw over to producer Dan and see what... Because it's such a, such a case where I think I can sympathise for the killings and understand them personally this is the one person not which if people ask you if you could be any killer for the for the, for the murders they've done oh you'd yeah. say I'd want to be Morsley because you can you can see why he's done these murders yeah and there are those other like revenge cases where someone abuses like that uh, Gary yeah. Gary uh, Blanche Blanche Gary yeah. Yeah, yeah 
What did you do, Gary? Yeah, why, Gary? Why? Yeah, why, Gary? Why? Yeah, when his son was abused by that guy, yeah, and then those, him, yeah. yeah, the kind of um, vigilante, as you said. Mm. Yeah, I can understand, and I, I had a little bit of sympathy for Eileen, but with Eileen, well, you could argue either way of Eileen. Yeah, with with Morsley, he's been let down time and time again by mental health services, the police, parents, um, parents, everyone trusted. Yeah. yeah. Produce Dan. Well, no, I get it. I, I, I'm a bit like you. I, I, I kind of felt sorry for him that first. Uh, not sorry for him. I had some empathy with that first killing. But then the wider discussion is kind of almost like capital punishment. Is it right just to kill him because they've done they've done wrong? And no. So I don't know. It's a difficult situation. Mm, that is a very fair point. It's, it's it's not right that he's killing all these people just because they've done wrong. Yeah, I don't think I'm. I'm not sitting here going patting on the back, going, "Go on, Robert." Yeah, but. A yeah. lot of the comments on, but then uh, that's again that's that's, that's, that's the, the, is there a lot of support for him? Oh god, yeah, yeah. Un- almost universal. Like wow. he's hailed as shouldn't be locked up whatsoever. He's done a, a public service. Yeah, a national treasure. I think was one of the comments. Which yeah, it, it's it's yeah, like you say, the capital punishment in itself divides. Yeah. So this is very much on the same ilk as that. 1983, psychiatrist deemed Maudsley untreatable and this time he was convicted of murder as well as the double murder and sentenced to life imprisonment in the normal criminal justice system and sent back to Wakefield Prison. When there, the governor refused to place him in the general population as he was deemed a danger to other prisoners, so he was moved into solitary confinement. This is another one of the kind of big, big talking points of the Robert Maudsley case. Prison authorities built a two-cell unit in the basement of Wakefield Prison to house him for the remainder of his confinement. As he is one of the few prisoners to receive a whole-life tariff, this essentially meant solitary confinement for the rest of his life. Yes, yeah, so this has gone on to apparently inspire, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter, the film Manhunter, where they're in the glass cages, and this has kind of gone in, yeah, gone into legend, and it's not really a clear picture of the actual no. cell itself. No, but that's why I think people have kind of formulated ideas in their head of actually what it looks like. Again, in my head, it's just keep keep it in a normal cell, you just keep him like in a different section. Because I mean, now I mean nowadays specifically, you know, people that abuse kids or or women tend to be kept in, in confinement themselves, don't mm-hmm. they? Away from other other prisoners because they are looked at as being the worst of the worst, and people will seek a revenge on them. How as well is glass safer than iron? Safer for the guards, I guess. Cause you got grab them, okay, or jab at them with a spoon. I want my shreddies. Keeps, oh, I want my hun- shreddies. Yeah, keeps hunger locked up till lunch. Not mortally. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so the full life tariff was not an initial condition of his sentence and was later added by Michael Howard, the UK's Home Secretary. So Maudsley's room is referred to as the glass cage, a two-room unit. Two cells are slightly larger than the average and have large bulletproof windows so that Maudsley can be observed at all times. The only furnishings are a table and chair, both made of compressed cardboard. That sounds uncomfortable. It does, doesn't it? If you sit mm. on a chair, it's just a bit lacking of life and you're like, mm. oh, fuck this chair. That's, well, his, that's his table as well. Nightmare trying to have rice pudding on that. <laughs> rice pudding on the table. He's, oh, this table's limp, Gov. Give the table, Gov. So the toilet and sink are bolted to the floor and the bed is a concrete slab. Good for your back, though. Very Fred Flintstone. A solid steel door opens into a small cage within the cell, encased in the thick perspex with a small slot at the bottom through which guards can pass some food and other items. He is in the cell for 23 hours a day, leaving only for exercise. So during his daily hour outside of his cage, he's escorted by six prison officers to the yard. Which again, it just feels a bit excessive. Especially for keeping an eye on him the whole time. He's built up this, this reputation over the years as the man that can... Played knifey spoony before. 
He bloody has, hasn't he? I mean, he's not allowed contact with any other inmates and no guard or prisoner is allowed to talk to him. And he didn't like being ignored or being abandoned, so... Here's the thing that I think, though. So when he was in, uh, his dad would lock him up in that room. Okay, that's horrible, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, I got throwbacks to the choking in Matilda. But he's happier if he's in that room and his dad's not coming to the door. It's when his dad comes to the door, he knows he's going to get beaten, he knows he could be sexually abused. Possibly could have found some inner peace and in sitting there in the darkness and being away from people. I'm thinking him being in solitary by himself, away from the people that, you know, make you know, make his head start, you know, hearing the voices, seeing red, wanting to seek revenge. Is it a better place for him to f- get more stable and, and kind of rehabilitate in that way? I think... How much of that time, going back to the locking in the room by the dad, how much of that time is he spent petrified about the next time that door yeah. opens and the waiting but then, apprehension of that? True, that's very true. But then I guess with this, he knows that no one's, no one's coming to that door that's going to do him harm. I don't know. Maybe Is it essentially a safe space for? It's those, those formative years when all of this abuse has happened that kind of makes up who you are for the rest of your life yeah. so maybe he isn't able to shake that off but i think also uh, there's a documentary i watched about solitary confinement and the long-term effects of that even if you go past six months solitary i mean this guy's done what 44 years now something like that solitary 23 hours a day the way that that mentally breaks you down <sighs> mm. no yeah, definitely it's no life, is it? Obviously. Yeah, oh yeah, it's not. It's definitely no life. I just don't know whether or not we'll go on to go about this. That he's, you know, he's got the bare essentials in there. Yeah, he's got the bare essentials. He hasn't got books. He hasn't got music. Mm-hmm. It, it we'll go on to more detail about him wanting these things. Yeah. So all he's got are his thoughts, and you know, a day in Maudsley's brain probably is going to be quite harrowing within itself. Mm. So during the 1990s, Maudsley spent some time at HMP Isle of Wight. Parkhurst Barracks, which was known as one of the toughest jails in the British Isles. Here, he met Dr. Bob Johnson, who, after three years of interviews and counselling, believed that he was making great progress with Maudsley and was three quarters of the way through removing the aggression and latent violence that made Maudsley such a danger. There's some really interesting audio of this. I mean, there's the famous pictures of Maudsley sat in his cell, but Mm. I can never find any kind of footage or anything like that. But the audio is really interesting. And this psychiatrist reminds me of me a little bit because he doesn't let Maudsley finish his sentences and keeps talking over him and it really annoyed me so sorry about that Tom hey don't worry about it okay um, without we'll pop some audio up for you now how would you describe the progress the progress that you're making the, the, the progress of today I think you've, you've come more into room with me mm-hmm. even though we're at a distance uh-huh. I'm able to talk about things a lot more a lot more things today yeah. than I was able to say six or more, nine months ago. We see the thing, Bob, and well, I say I know, I know, I know in the past when I've tried to sort of face these things. What's the thing? You know, I, 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 I I'm just capable of doing anything, Bob, uh-huh. as the adult here. Yes, exactly. and, that, and that's why I've got to be cautious, Absolutely. Of, you know. Absolutely right. You, you, you're keeping yeah. the speed on these things, right? All I'm doing is saying this is where we're going to move in due course. I think what I've been doing, I think I'm effectively putting in pieces. Right. But I have to make sure the pieces fit. Well, they will eventually. That's right. Yes, you yeah. do. You have to piece them together. Yeah. That's and right. I think that's come on fairly well. 
I do. I think you're doing brilliant. I mean, you know. Without warning, the treatment was cut off and Maudsley was moved back to Wakefield. Um, a quote from Paul, who is uh, Maudsley's brother, about the removal of Maudsley from Dr. Johnson's psychiatric care. As far as I can tell, the prison authorities are trying to break him. Every time they see him make a little progress, they throw a spanner in the works. He spent a time in Woodhill Prison, and there he was getting on well with the staff, even playing chess with them. He had access to books and music and television. Now they have put him back in the cage at Wakefield. His troubles started because he got locked up as a kid. All they do when they put him back in there is bring all that trauma back to him. Yeah, I read, uh, read as well that he has an incredibly high IQ. Yeah. And was always pushing to play board games and chess with uh, various guards, wanted to listen to classical music. And yeah. when you hear him speaking, he is able to articulate quite well. But you could argue the reason the authorities are trying to break, uh, well, according to his brother, trying to break him, could be again that from their view, he's made a mockery by killing people under their watch very quickly and that made national headlines as well that he was able to do that under their care. I think this again will be one that divides opinion in terms of, you know, what they feel if they feel like he should be able to be given these things and get given this little slight relief and places to escape in terms of, you know, reading a book and being escaped and lost in a book. Yeah, it is it's a very, it's a, such an interesting case. So many elements to it. But yeah, that's enough from the timeline, but we're going to throw now to Dr. Das for a bit more of a psychological evaluation on Robert Maudsley. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Shaham Das. I'm a consultant, forensic psychiatrist and an expert witness, and I am the host of the YouTube channel, A Psych for Soul Minds. Okay, so this is my psychoanalysis of Robert Maudsley. To me, the most interesting aspect of Maudsley is his childhood. I'm going to dissect bits of that and I'm going to explain how, in my opinion, it relates to his actions and specifically his victims. We know that Maudsley was one of 12 children and he spent his early years in a Catholic orphanage. Then he was retrieved by his parents at the age of eight. Then he was physically abused by them. Then he was removed and taken into social care and later he was raped as a child. And after all that, in his adolescence, he started working as a sex worker in London and he used this to get money to fund his drug habit. In terms of his mental health, he had several suicide attempts and he actually saw doctors and he reported hearing voices to kill his parents. And he was actually in Broadmoor Hospital for a short period of time, which I think is really interesting and I'll come back to that. So why am I telling you all of this about his childhood? In my professional opinion, I think that this all indicates that Maudsley had this really twisted sense of morality as opposed to having a mental illness. So one red herring I think is him hearing voices. From the evidence I've seen, his hearing voices are related to trauma. So it's related to his experiences of his bad parenting and it's not related to a mental illness. So for example, you can hear voices in psychosis. Psychosis like schizophrenia is where you step out of reality, hearing voices, paranoid delusions. But with that kind of illness, you have this lack of functioning and you have negative symptoms like isolation, withdrawal, and there's no evidence that Maudsley had that. As I said, he was rejected by his parents, then he was accepted, then he was abused, then he was rejected again, and then he was sexually abused. So this barrage of traumas, I think, would have led to a monumental confusion of his identity because he's got such mixed messages, inconsistent messages from his parents and from other caregivers about emotional support and about love. And then on top of that, I think he viewed himself as being the dregs of society. So I think this all, in combination, left him with a colossal inferiority complex and made him think himself worthless. 
I think all of that is relevant because I think that he picked his victims in relation to this. So we know that three of them were known child molesters and one of them was a wife murderer. And I think he selected his victims because in his mind, he could take the moral high ground. So these were people that were lesser than him. He felt he had a right to punish them because they were more worthless than him. And he already felt that he was quite low down in the hierarchy. And on top of all of that, I think his victims potentially represented figures of hatred for him. So, you know, his parents, the person that molested him. And I think something that reflects this is if we examine when he killed David Francis in Broadmoor, this was a really prolonged, horrific and vicious attack. It lasted several hours. It was not just about killing this man. It wasn't just about ridding the world of a paedophile. I think his actions showed that he gained a perverse pleasure and therefore he was justified in his actions. I mentioned the fact that Maudsley was in Broadmoor for a while. I think this again is a bit of a red herring because he wasn't in there for a long period of time. He was just their pre-assessment for his trial. So he was initially found unfit to plead. So that meant at the point of his admission, he was thought to not be cognitively capable of going through the trial process, you know, following the evidence, putting in a plea of guilty versus not guilty. But he was in Broadmoor for a relatively short period of time and then he didn't have a psychiatric defence and he was eventually sent to prison as opposed to staying in Broadmoor. So that means that the conclusion after his assessment in Broadmoor was that he wasn't mentally ill. To me, this is a bit confusing about why, why was he thought to be ill enough to go there in the first place, but not kept there at his trial. There's a couple of possibilities. One could be that he improved in his mental health in that short time period, which is feasible, for example, if he was taking certain medications. Or it could be that his killing somebody in Broadmoor was so high profile and so controversial that it was felt that he shouldn't be given what could be perceived as an easy option. So he had to be sent to prison rather than hospital. Another interesting question, I think, is why do people like Maudsley, who are victims of physical abuse, become violent in uh, later life? So obviously I'm not talking about everybody, but a significant proportion. And there's lots of different mechanisms. One is that they tend to model what they see. So Maudsley may have witnessed violence from his father and he may have modelled it as a way of conflict resolution. But on top of that, often people who have been victim of prolonged abuse, they feel inadequate and they have all this anger. So they displace it when they're older to, towards people that they perceive as being weaker. So what I'm saying is they have this feeling of helplessness and powerlessness as a child and they overcompensate by violence when they're adults. One other thing that I wanted to touch upon was how is it possible for him to have carried out this prolonged assault in Broadmoor? So I've worked at Broadmoor in the past and just very quickly, I would highlight that Broadmoor is a hospital. So there's a misconception that it's a form of prison, but it's not, even though it's high secure and there are you know, gates, locked doors, fences, etc. The whole ethos of being in Broadmoor is for rehabilitation and treatment. Broadmoor is, is geared up, like all high secure hospitals, to deal with extreme violence. One element is observation. So the patients are usually observed thoroughly, which makes you wonder how Maudsley was able to, to continue this prolonged attack. And I, I struggle to answer that question, to be frank. I think this all happened you know, in the 70s. So I think the, the standard of care has improved over, over the years in all hospitals, including Broadmoor. So apart from observations, the way that you deal with violence in that kind of place is you medicate against paranoia or psychosis and you give people sedatives as well. And if people are acting erratically or violently, then you can put them in like a seclusion room. So it's a locked room for their own safety for, for temporary periods of time. So I think Maudsley must have been able to con the staff to a degree to make them think that he's less dangerous than he actually was. So I think he was able to use his personality and charm to let them drop their defenses. So that 
in a nutshell, is my psychoanalysis of Robert Maudsley. If you're interested in this kind of topic, so true crime with a twist of psychiatry, then you've definitely got to go and check out my channel. It's called A Psych for Sore Minds. I dissect high-profile cases, and I've actually got a series about high-profile Broadmoor ex-patients. So I've done a video on Robert Maudsley, also talked about Ronnie Cray, Charles Bronson and the Nail Bomber. Okay, that's enough from me. Now back to Tom and Ben. Thank you very much, Dr. Das. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to his channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. We'll pop the link in the description below. Um, it's got loads of other uh, content regarding Broadmoor. Putin. Putin. Yeah, a wide range of cases on there, which he really goes in depth on. So we recommend you go over there. The link's in the description below. Give it a click and give him a sub. So it's just a bit more, you're going to go into a bit more kind of just a bit of trivia about Maudsley and other kind of interesting tidbits. Um, in his early years with the solitary confinement, Maudsley would befriend cockroaches. The next 12 years, let his fingernails grow like talons and his hair grow long and wispy because a prison barber would venture near his cell. And this is where the Wolfman of Wakefield nickname came from. And he'd also, when he wrote letters to his family, would sign it off, Wolfie, with a kiss. Wolfie? Uh, I thought it was the wolf from Gladiator. Um, Wolfie. You know, he he made do with cockroaches. But the one thing he really wanted, Ben, was a budgie. And in the year 2000, he wrote in a series of letters to the Times his request that he asked for, which one of them was, why can't I have a budgie instead of the flies and cockroaches and spiders I currently have? I promise to love it and not eat it. It's that last line that's putting me off, Robert. Why did you say that? Yeah, I know what you mean. I promise to love it and not eat it. Yeah. Now that you've said that, I kind of think you might. Another uh, quote from uh, Maudsley was, I'm left to stagnate, vegetate and to regress. They have to confront my solitary head-on with people who have eyes but don't see and who have ears but don't hear, who have mouths but don't speak. My life in solitary is one long period of unbroken depression. Good words. Articulate, yeah. Yeah, very good words. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, since 1979, which is 43 years now, he's been in solitary, allegedly in this perspex isolation cell, in the basement, which again is kind of derogatory. The basement of a prison. Mm. Is that just to big it up even more? Because I heard he was just around the corner from Bronson. A lot of this you do feel is steeped in uh, hearsay and mm -hmm. elevated. So, yeah, there has been some people, you know, felt uh, sympathy for him. Jane Heaton began writing to Maudsley and has visited him several times. Some quotes from Jane are, Three years ago, I read an article about Bob, which included quotes from him and his conditions in prison. I thought, gosh, that's awful. I couldn't find it in me to believe that regardless of what someone had done, it was humane to keep them living like that. I dropped him a line, he replied, and it carried on from there. The first visit was a closed one. I looked through the glass and thought, Oh, you poor sod. Having got to know the person behind the tabloid myth, when sensational stuff is written about him, I just shrug my shoulders and think, here we go again. Essentially, yeah, people saying, you know, they didn't believe, you know, he, they think he's changed as a person over that time as well, which if the whole point of prison is to re rehabilitate, um, you know, you thought maybe over time they'd be able to give him small luxuries as well. Uh, there's petitions online for people who think he, he's being treated as poor. The way it's described is that he's almost swept under the rug, like out of sight, out of mind. Let's mm. put him, pop him in the basement, bit of glass, leave him there to stagnate. <laughs> At the time of filming this podcast, just a few days ago, a brand new documentary aired on Channel 5, which is called HMP, Wakefield, Evil Behind Bars. So it's definitely going to be my weekend watch this weekend. Um, Ben's weekend watch. There we go. Yeah, I'll, I'll feed back. I'll feed back. A big part of the documentary itself focuses on Maudsley. So quite intrigued to see that one. I swear we always seem to do that. Yeah. And it's very rarely on purpose. There was an interesting uh, quote around in the old TV mag guide. And it gives you like a little summary. You still getting them? I don't, but... Maudsley is now in a perspex isolation cell at HMP Wakefield and is serving a whole life sentence, meaning he will never be released. His daily routine involves playing video games and writing letters. He also enjoys 
drinking banana milkshakes. He remains in the cell for all but an hour daily. During his daily hour of exercise, he is escorted by six yeah. prison officers. However, he doesn't always opt to leave the cell. He's good at kippy uppies. So he's asked before for a cyanide capsule to end his life in peace. Both reje- requests were rejected. If a prisoner wants to take their life and they're, they're in for life, I guess always that part, that's part of the punishment, punishment, isn't it? Not giving them any control on the situation. Mm. But, um, Quite a few manage it though, don't they? Shipman was in Wakefield as well. Maudsley also enjoys classical music, poetry and art, and he also has an extremely high IQ. He has made several requests to take college courses at Open University. He also has a PlayStation 2 and spent his 64th birthday playing Call of Duty. So although Maudsley is not allowed any contact with fellow inmates, there are other prisoners considered too dangerous who are also held within the basement at Wakefield. One inmate is Charles Salvador, formerly known as Charles Bronson, who was sent to Wakefield as one of Britain's most violent prisoners for the involvement in numerous hostage situations. When he arrived at Wakefield, Bronson attempted to form a friendship with Maudsley, suggesting the two should team up, quite the tag team, and sent a watch to Maudsley, telling the guard to give that to Bob. However, Maudsley sent it back, telling someone, I'm never getting out, what do I want a watch for? Give it back. Because of this, Bronson took offence and allegedly said, I'm going to kill you when I see you. Wardsley would often jokingly reply back, you've never killed anyone, you soft cunt. <laughs> Spicy from Wardsley. Yeah, he has got a way with words. <laughs> he Spinning does. a spoon while he spoke while he said it. You never killed anyone, you soft cunt. Uh, once Bronson left his trademark John Lennon sunglasses in the gym and Maudsley went and found them. Bronson threatened to sue the prison system £250 and Maudsley eventually returned them and turned the guard, tell Charlie to stick them up his arse. <laughs> I'm the only beetle here. So yeah, that's quite fun. I do like the fact that he's bullying Bronson. And some trivia as well. Uh, since the death of Ian Brady in 2017, Maudsley has been the longest serving British prisoner. Do you know the reason why he had the nickname Blue, Ben? I believe it was something to do with the very first victim. It was the colour of the face of his very first victim and what, what they what he turned when he slowly strangled them. So many nicknames. Blue, Spoons, Wolfie. They all sound quite tame, don't they? Yeah. Blue's Clues. It's a spoon in his fucking head. It was Maudsley. An interesting bite back as well, quote from Bronson which you, they can both give it by the sound of it. Bronson, who uh, wrote a book and mentioned Maudsley in his book, says that Maudsley lives in a complete fantasy world of violence. We now hate each other. I pray that one day we bump into each other at 300 fucking miles per hour. And unlike him, I don't need a blade. Nobody rips my heart out or eats my brain, especially a fucking nutcase like Bob Maudsley. Lunology by Bronson, out now. To be fair, I think Maudsley wins. <laughs> With the comebacks there. Be an interesting fight. Mm. Rather than Logan Paul, uh, Mayweather, Bronson, Mortley. Two old British inmates fighting. Dan, would you pay to see that? Yeah. There you go. No cutlery allowed. Ben, lookalikes. Hands up. Uh, completely forgot about doing them. I'm a bit rusty, it seems. Rusty spoons. And uh, I mm. thought of some whilst I was doing the episode. So kind of more what he reminds me of rather than a good lookalikey. I'm going to try and think of them when Ben does his because there definitely are loads 100% but I'm really fucking struggling I don't know if this this is going to hold up too well but my first one is I feel like Bob Maudsley could be almost any of the Bay City Rollers apart from one of them yeah (laughs) I mean to return that I reckon you could put him in a leather jacket and he could be in the Ramones yeah so so Bay City Rollers and Ramones the only other one I thought another good fight yeah, I don't think Ramones win that. Probably, yeah. Well, there's more. Well, if I was to draw Maudsley as a kid, mm. Horrid Henry, uh, the original. Um, 
pretty good. Are you sure you only just came up with these now? Yep. <laughs> what do you mean? Because that's great. The original, they're not the um, yeah, yeah, not yeah. the modern day one. Um, ben, but obviously your your real one. What is that? My Bay City Rollers one was kind of my stronger one. Mm. Uh, based on two cases we've covered before. Hear me out on this one. Jeremy Bamba has a child with Eileen okay. Wernos, and it's a boy. And you get Robert Maudsley. <laughs> I mean, I do like it. That's quite good. I do like it. I don't often let you have the kind of weird feel. ones, but I, I do actually think that's... And I'm probably because I've, you know, I've come here, I'm, 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 uh, I'm prepared. I think the Bamboo one, there's definitely, there's definitely something about him. Yeah. And they're both in Wakefield together. But there you go. That is the case of Robert Maudsley, the brain eater. Is that the spiciest one? There are... So we were spoiled for choice with titles this week, guys, so... Probably the brain eater. Probably the I brain think. eater. The man in the glass box. A bit. Uh, spoons blue banana shakes let us know uh, what your thoughts are about Maudsley and uh, there's a lot of, lot of different things to... unless it was just the top rated comments and I just saw five or six on each video I watched there's a lot of likes on the ones I saw loads of love for him universal acclaim is, mm. is the, the term that comes to mind very different case very different case I, I came into this one not knowing very much at all but it's got so many layers and guys if you just can't get enough of this main channel content although obviously there's been you've seen exactly what we do on Patreon because mm-hmm. uh, that's been the kind of stopgap whilst I was away that's the kind of content we do over on Patreon we do uh, weekly episodes minisodes over there you pick a case it gets put in a poll and everyone votes for it the smaller cases a bit more niche cases a bit more light hearted with some of the cases as well so why not go over there it only works out about a quid a week and yes over 60 episodes over there now and by becoming uh, a Patreon backer you also unlock a lovely little discount for our online store if you want to get yourself a sweater t-shirt candle tote bag mug hat sticker badge badge think i've done it all we also have bundles uh then uh why not head over to icmap.store uh, for all your goodies and if you want to get to know us a little bit better why not follow us on instagram twitter at could we post daily over there and facebook uh a lot going on over there bubbling away a great community over there can't be said enough people over there they're having a laugh they're having a giggle they're talking about true crime um if that's a bit of you why not go over there Simple. There you go. So how do they do that, Tom? Ah, I'd search on Facebook. Yeah. Hit follow. Big thank you to Dr. Das for his thoughts on this week's case. Big thank you to the Gully Gums for dressing us. Ben, New York forever. Forever, baby. New York Knicks. New York Knicks. uh, Doubtfire. And big thank you to Dead Happy for sponsoring this week's episode. Go over there, use our code, and get three months for free. I'm buying a house currently. Need life insurance. Mm -hmm. Dead happy. Uh, did happy to go over there and thank you all for your continued support um, thank you so much for your patience we're happy to be back we've got a massive uh, case coming up next week then we have the audience vote so get over to uh, Instagram and, and cast your vote there we've got three more big cases after that I think I've counted the numbers correctly Five. who knows I'm not an abacus and on that note like we always say we say this all the time keep doing what you're doing unless um, well Sharpening spoons is blue. Unless he's eating rice pudding on a cardboard table. That's all right. Palling up with cheeseman. Pissing off Bronson. Anyway, till next time, guys. Two bit. Bye bye. One, two, three, four, five. Once I caught a fish alive. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What did you do to the fish? Then I fucked. Ooh, damn. Damn, Daniel. Back at it again.
You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Additional research and timelines written by Danielle St. Romain. Additional voiceover by James Cartwright. Work and animation by Phil Wooten. And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on YouTube and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search at Pod. For additional and exclusive content, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash pod. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.